Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The motto E Pluris Pluribus Unum, out of many one, first appeared on U.S. coins 225 years ago as a way of signifying that we are the United States. Interestingly, it's not the official motto of the United States, which has been in God we trust since 1956. In high school history classes, many of us were told that the great challenge to American unity, to the true uniting of the states, came at the end of the Civil War. These United States became the United States. But but tensions existed long before there were states or American citizens dating all the way back to the arrival of the first colonists. Calls for secession long preceded the Civil War, and such calls have been heard many times since, including today. Richard Kreitner, a contributing writer at The Nation, explores the history of American Union and disunion in his new book called Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. It's published by Little Brown, and I'm very pleased that it has brought Richard Kreitner to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much, Leonard, for having me on. Really appreciate it. You've divided your book into four parts. Uh, are, so there have been four separate kinds of uh, things that have happened over the course of uh, of our history? Well, the four parts don't really divide it thematically um, so much as just by, by eras that seem to make sense to me in terms of the, the making and unmaking of American unity. And also I found that different metaphors for the Union were present um, predominantly in each of those four eras. So the first one on the colonial period, you get a lot of science metaphors, the Union as an experiment, the Union as kind of an admixture of different elements, uh, like an alchemical experiment. And then part two in the antebellum period, you hear a lot of metaphors about Union as a marriage and as of secession as, as a possible divorce. And then during the Civil War era, um, you know, my, part three is called The Earthquake Comes. You get a lot mm-hmm. of seismic metaphors of eruptions and, and volcanoes and, and earthquakes breaking out uh, beneath Americans' feet. And then finally, um, I kind of made this one up. You don't really see it so much in the, in the literature, but it's called The Return of the Repressed, and it's kind of a psychological mm-hmm. metaphor of the union as a patient and of secession or disunion as a possible breakdown uh, that we might experience, and that's based in some some language that Freud himself actually used. And it still happens when Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton four years ago. Weren't there calls in several blue states for secession? Did any uh, get beyond the stage of cheap talk and, and heated rhetoric? No, not not quite yet, but it was very interesting to me that that has increasingly become Americans' reaction to a presidential election in which their side loses. That hasn't always been the case, especially in recent memory. You know, in the 70s and 80s, that wasn't really the way people responded when George W. Bush uh, or when George H. W. Bush won the 1988 presidential election. But that is that has been the case for the last you know since about 2004, I would say, when uh, in response to George W. Bush's reelection, a lot of people circulated maps. Um, and again, this is mostly still just talk, but I think, I think quite significant that it's returned to our politics. They circulated maps that showed the United States broken, or North America broken down into Jesus land, you know, evangelical, red-leaning conservative states, and um, the United States of Canada, they called it, in which, you know, the West Coast and the East Coast join up with, with Canada. And that continued in 2008, and especially in 2012, when a lot of Republicans signed petitions asking for their states to secede from the Union to protest Obama's re-election. And before the 2016 election, actually, it was Texas that was kind of taking the lead. Texas is probably the largest and, and most pro- uh, 
prominent independence movement alive today. It kind of went underground after Trump won the election and took a lot of the wind out of their sails. Um, but I think it's very likely to return should Biden win uh, this November's election. And um, as American politics grows increasingly polarized and divided over the next decade or so. And California as well. Wasn't a political action committee formed, yes, California, to promote Californian independence, which trended on Twitter with the hashtag, um, hashtag CalExit? Um, if there were a, recommend, a referendum in California, Texas, or New York, and secessionists won, what would likely happen? I really don't know. I mean, we only have one indication of, of what has happened so far in American history, and that was, you know, these... Um, the, well, if it happened in a referendum, that would be different than in 1860, 1861, when the states in, in the soon-to-be Confederacy had proper uh, conventions called and new elections, and, and it was those conventions that declared independence from the United States. How it happened this time, it's, it's really not too clear. The, you know, one of the questions that I try to raise in the book is, is, are we really willing to fight once again, to fight a civil war to keep the country united? This is something that obviously meant a lot to people, um, especially in the North, of course, in 1861. Um, I'm not sure that it means quite as much to us today, and I'm not sure that people would be willing to fight to hold the country together. States like Mitch McConnell's Kentucky depend on, on federal spending raised through taxes in more prosperous states like New York. Virginia is another major beneficiary. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts receive less than they contribute. Does that suggest it might be in the best interest for the South to fight for the North to remain in the Union? I don't know. It kind of depends on what South you're talking about. Are you talking about, you know, white conservatives in the South? Um, are you talking about, you know, African-Americans who tend to vote Democratic but, but aren't, you know, haven't been able to take control at the state level? Um, I'm not really sure. But, you know, it was interesting this spring when Mitch McConnell derided requests by uh, Democratic-leaning governors for financial assistance from the federal government uh, after the coronavirus swept through their states. And McConnell denounced the idea of blue state bailouts. And I, you know, I saw a lot of a lot of uh, you know progressives who don't usually talk in this kind of way, pointing out what you what you just noticed, which is that blue states tend to subsidize red states, not the other way around. Mm. And if you know people like McConnell continue to push on our patients or or something, um, you know, people might get kind of fed up and and decide they're better off not uh, submitting to those arrangements much longer. But would it actually ever uh, be put on the ballot? I, I don't know. But, you know, my, my book's a history. Um, you know, not not a, not basically a forecast of what might happen. Um, but yes. but it, it shows that the idea of secession has always been present in American history, and and these kinds of you know pesky constitutional issues of whether you can actually do it have really not been of that much um, concern to the people who favor it at one time or another. And often, you know, especially before the Civil War, those who favored secession at one time favored you know a strong and perpetual union at another, or or switched sides the other way once their interests seemed to be sacrificed. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how it would happen, but, um, you know, I wrote the book because I was seeing a strange and, and troublesome growing amount of talk, uh, you know, about it on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, it's to some degree, uh, as you point out, paradoxically, you write, disunion has been one of our only truly national ideas. And that is that because divisions left unresolved with the ratification of the Constitution in 1788 led to things like the 11 southern states seceding 72 years later? 
Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons. Another reason, as, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, goes back to even much earlier than that, into colonial times. You know, this is this summer, actually, is the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower sailing from England to, to America. And the people on, on board that ship, we tend to think of as pilgrims. But they didn't call themselves pilgrims. They called themselves separatists because they wanted mm-hmm. to secede from the Church of England and set up independent congregations. And once they got to the so-called New World, they immediately started fracturing once again into different different communities. And if you had a problem with the, with the town in which you lived, you would just leave and set up another one. You know, each town was basically an act of secession from another. And I suggest that that encoded a certain separatist instinct in, in Americans' political DNA, so that any time you had kind of an intractable political dispute, um, you know, so long as there was more land, you could just get up and move away. But otherwise, you, you might even try to secede from the Union, as you know, many, many groups did. That, that's why I say um, it may be our only national idea, because almost every group at one time or another, and almost every region at one time or another, has thought about it, you know, um, and has, has considered it. You know, of course, only the Confederacy went through with it. But there's a very long history before the Civil War of Northern disunionism. Um, and, and there were times where it, very, it seemed very clear that New England might actually take that fateful step. And wasn't, weren't there calls before the Civil War for the North, the North to secede and leave the South to whatever it was going to do? Uh, all exactly changed right. with, that's, that's actually, with, the, with, the, with the attack on Fort Sumter. That's right. That's actually kind of, I would say, my favorite passage. And, and the abolitionists, you know, disunion abolitionists, very, very radical people who were pushing that idea, are kind of the heroes of the book because they, they wanted the North to secede from the Union to protest and, and actually undermine slavery. They've been derided by lots of historians since and people in their own day as, you know, um, wanting clean consciences more than they actually wanted to help the enslaved people in the South. But that wasn't really the case. People like William Lloyd Garrison um, believed that if, if the North withdrew its support from the Constitution, you know, and, and wasn't um, beholden anymore to the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution, for instance, or a provision that required the federal government to suppress slave insurrections wherever they might occur, they thought that the price of slaves would plummet, especially in the Upper South, and eventually slavery might wither away. That may or may not have happened, but they certainly had a theory of the case. Um, and I think that that's, I think those, they're kind of bold uh, and visionary activists who deserve approbation and, and admiration today. But weren't there uh, differences even among the, the northern states? For example, Pennsylvania was an abolitionist state, but New Jersey uh, had slavery pretty much until the Civil War. That's that's true. I mean, a very, very few numbers uh up to the Civil War, um, I think they'd, they'd passed an original emancipation law like 50 years earlier or something. Um, it was just people who had, who had survived. But certainly there were differences in the North, and this is, this is the theme of my chapter about the Civil War itself, which is that the divisions that had existed under the Union ever since independence, and indeed before that, persisted during the war itself within the Confederacy and the Union. So there were separatist movements within the Confederacy. Um, you know, these are people who were anti-slavery, or not anti-slavery, but, but they, you know, mountainous areas where even white citizens were not uh, well off enough to own slaves, and therefore they were against slave ownership, um, where they, they seceded from the Confederacy or tried to in order to avoid you know contributing to the war. Similarly, in the North, there were lots of rebellions, uh, especially, of course, the draft riots in New York City and, um, and lots of support for the Confederacy that existed in the Midwest, uh, in southern Indiana and southern Illinois. Um, so, yeah, there were, there were lots of divisions within, within 
in both sides, uh, absolutely. But, you know, at least then you could draw a fairly clean line at the Mason-Dixon. There were complications on either side, but you could draw a fairly clean line. There's, there's nothing like that today, of course, which, you know, for a lot of people makes, it, makes the dissolution of the union seem much less likely. Um, but I think it just makes it, it messier should it, should it happen. You know, the union will not break in one, in one place, but, but everywhere and all at once. But even uh, a century and, a more, and more before the revolution and the Constitution, uh, British arrivals came here uh, to find uh, the East Coast was already claimed by the Dutch, the French, the Spaniards. And of course, uh, it was the home of Native Americans. So um, how divided were the colonies in the 17th and, and early 18th centuries? And there were they also were religious divided. differences, as you pointed out with the, uh, the the pilgrims. There were major religious differences. There were Catholics coming here to escape persecution as well. And, Absolutely. And Jews started coming. Ethnic, right. Ethnic differences, ling- uh, linguistic differences, and most importantly, you know, geographical divisions. Um, you know, they didn't really have much communication between, say, Massachusetts and Virginia. Nobody was really traveling through the, the American colonies uh, very extensively. And those who did, you know, as I, as I write, you know, largely focused on the divisions and the differences that they saw and made predictions that Americans could never unite together and declare independence, that if they did, there would, there would eventually and not soon, long, you know, not soon thereafter be a civil war from one end of the continent to another. That's a direct quote from a, a traveler in 1759. Yeah. You know, there's a reason we, we kind of skip over it pretty quickly in most, you know, historical surveys or classes. But there's a reason why it took 150 years for the American colonists to form a union. It wasn't because nobody had really thought about it. Um, it was because they didn't want to. They, they had no interest in joining together. Um, you know, we, we remember Benjamin Franklin's famous snake picture, you know, the cartoon, mm-hmm. Join or Die. And people kind of associate that vaguely with the revolution or, you know, event with, with the national unity that eventually formed. But that, that was Franklin's, you know, bid to support a plan of union that, that he put out in 1754, which was totally rejected by the colonists. They wanted nothing to do it. And they, they essentially equated union with tyranny. And when they eventually did join together during the revolution, it wasn't because they really wanted to form a union. It was because it was a means to an end. It was the only way that they saw that they could successfully rebel against the crown. The uh, the Ben Franklin uh, cartoon, um, if, which was interestingly from 1754, quite a time before the American Revolution, uh, shows uh, the snake being cut uh, from New England to South Carolina. But uh, I'm I'm wondering about even earlier. For example, um, did upheavals in Britain, like the Glorious Revolution of of 1688, affect political divides in the colonies? Absolutely. You know, and, and there was actually a glorious revolution uh, subsequently in, in the United States, well, not the United States, but in the American colonies, once they learned of the revolution that happened in Great Britain. Uh, King James II, who, who was overthrown in the glorious revolution, had formed and supported a union of New England called the Dominion of New England. And that took in everywhere from Maine down to New Jersey. Um, and th- they took away the charters of each of the colonies, which they'd kind of treasured and, and cherished as, as basically a rudimentary form of self-government and forced them into a union together. And they hated this. They wanted nothing to do with it. And they, so they took advantage of the news of King James II's ouster by William and Mary um, and to overthrow the dominion of New England. And that, you know, so that's why I write that effectively the first American revolution was not, as we think, a revolution to form a union, but actually one to destroy one. 
My guest is Richard Kreitner. His uh, latest book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, The Secret History of America's Imperfect Union, published by Little Brown. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. So in 1776, the colonies seceded from Great Britain. Does that suggest that a right to secede is embedded in the American legal foundation? I wouldn't say in the American legal foundation because the Declaration of Independence, you know, is not a, a constitutional document. Some people in American history, say Abraham Lincoln, tried to make it into one, but it's really not. It was essentially a divorce letter, um, and it, it's a disunion manifesto saying that, you know, these are the conditions under which you can rebel and, and dissolve the bands of one people with another. But I, I don't see that as a legal document. It's really more of a philosophical document and, and a statement of the American creed. And it's one that, that subsequent generations of American dissidents picked up and ran with and, and said, well, if it was good enough for the American revolutionaries, how can you be against our seceding? The, the issue that, that ultimately culminated in the Civil War was not over whether there was a revolutionary right of secession, that is, whether the, the Declaration of Independence was correct, that any people had the right to alter or abolish their government, but whether there was a constitutional right of secession, um, which, you know, is, is to me, uh, too close to call, as some have put it. Um, it. It's not really quite clear enough, and that's why there was a war. Now, Ben Franklin reportedly warned that we must all hang together or we will hang separately. Was he responding to that sense of division among the different colonies? Did the colonists see themselves as Americans or as Virginians, New Yorkers, Pennsylvanians, etc.? That's interesting. I mean, most of them saw themselves as uh, saw their their colonies as their nations and spoke of them accordingly. There were a few, like Patrick Henry, who said, "I'm not a Virginian. I'm an American." But what we forget when, when a lot of historians quote that is that he was arguing on behalf of proportional representation in the Congress. He was saying that if we're going to have this, this National Assembly, each state should not get its own vote, should, should not get equal votes, but Virginia, which had the most people, should get more votes than, say, New Jersey or Delaware, which had very few people. Um, so, yes, he was making a call for you know, national unity, but it was really to the purpose of, of you know, states, uh, not states' rights, but state interests. Um, and I think that's very uh, indicative of the overall revolutionary attitude, which is that even when there were very patriotic calls, they, they usually represented um, kind of slyly uh, personal or sectional or state-based interests. Well, how did they see themselves? They had been British until uh, the, the revolution. And then somebody like Alexander Hamilton was born in the West Indies. Uh, do you think that gave him a different perspective on the American colonies? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, he didn't have these local ties. You know, John Adams was a Bostonian just through and through, and he didn't understand people from other, you know, cities or colonies at all. And that was true of, of people from other places as well. You know, George Washington is in the Continental Army encampment outside Boston in 1775, and he's, he's writing letters home about how, you know, disgusting the Yankees are and, and how he really can't stand the New Englanders. Um, but but did they all see themselves people, as British? Did they see themselves as British? Yeah. Is that I mean, the thing that unified them all? 
Not, not really. No, I, I wouldn't say so. I think it was, it was. I'm not sure what really unified them. You know, it was different. Different um, revolutionaries had different reasons for going to war. There's been a lot of talk, you know, with the 1619 project about the claim that, you know, the defense of slavery was behind the American Revolution. That's true, and that isn't that isn't true. I mean, that was true for Virginians who were very upset that a British general had offered emancipation to, um, you know, American slaves if they fought against the Patriots. But that really didn't play any role in why John Adams supported the revolution. Um, and other people supported the revolution because Britain had been um, – had passed something called the Quebec Act, you know, which, which basically took away land uh, from the West – from the Western colon- – you know, Western lands from the colonies and, and undermined uh, land claims. You know, so lots of different people have different reasons for joining the revolution, and that's one of the reasons why they were so fractious when they came out of it. You know, Ham- what, what's, what's really interesting and visionary about Hamilton is that he didn't have – have those kinds of local ties and interests. You know, he, he came from, from the Caribbean. So he was kind of able to see a larger national picture where other people weren't. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the generous way to put it. Another way to put it is, is that these people wanted, you know, self-rule, and, and they saw self-government and democracy as something that necessarily needed to happen close to home. They didn't want to send their representatives, you know, 100, several hundred miles away to work out deals with people from really far that had different, totally different religions and and, and identities and, and interests than they did. So Hamilton saw above that, but he also didn't really have much great respect for those kinds of local local ties and interests that a lot of other people did. And, you know, that got into him into a lot of trouble throughout his career. Well, didn't the Articles of Confederation satisfy the people who were concerned about having to travel to, uh, to, to work with people from other states? Uh, it was the first framework for union of the 13 colonies, and it, it created states that were more independent than they would become under the Constitution. Now, since it was answering the problem at the time, why were the Articles of Confederation replaced with the Constitution, which uh, forced a sense of unity? Yeah, well, there, there were definitely certain flaws in the Articles of Confederation. You know, Congress wasn't able to raise money. It had to basically ask or ultimately beg the states to send voluntary contributions every year uh, in order in order for it to to have you know have money to pay debtors and whatnot. So there were definitely problems with it. But you know, my my argument is is kind of a what they call a neo progressive one, which is that the founders, the framers who who ultimately went to Philadelphia, kind of took advantage of the situation to create a government and ratify a constitution much much less responsive to popular complaint and and ultimately much less democratic. Um, you know, my 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 favorite story about the Articles of Confederation is how they were ratified, uh, because unlike the Constitution. Um, you needed unanimous consent in order to to ratify the Articles of Confederation and any subsequent amendment. Uh, but there was one holdout state, and that was Maryland, and that was because they didn't trust that that Congress was going to see after the interests of states like Maryland that did not have very large Western land claims, as say you know Virginia did or, or New York um, or the Carolinas. And so Maryland held out. Uh, but until the very, very end of the war, very nearly, um, when America's French patron um, basically blackmailed Maryland into ratifying the Articles of Confederation. Um, and so it's essentially, you know, we talk a lot about foreign meddling these days and, and foreign collusion in American politics. But without that, that meddling, uh, we might not have had our first constitution. We might not have stayed together as a nation after the war at all. Didn't the Constitution do more to protect wealth and property from possible 
redistributive pressure from the people. Uh, and I, I'm wondering about the Electoral College uh, and the fact that the the Senate has two representatives from states, however large or small they are. Uh, it, was that a way of ensuring a sense of unity? Uh, yeah, two, two really large questions. One, um, on the wealth distribution question, yes, I think that's undoubtedly the case. It's, it's controversial. People disagree. You know, people like um, Gordon Wood would, would argue that the Constitution created a, a, a larger merchant class and eventually a middle class that allowed people to, to rise through the ranks of American society. Um, there's arguments against that. Uh, and I, I ultimately think that, that it was basically uh, motivated by the desire to take the power out of state legislatures to respond to populist complaints for tax relief and especially debt relief, you know, ultimately the redistribution of wealth. Um, as for the Senate, I actually see it as, as quite the opposite, not as an institution meant to foster national unity, but really an institution that in, embedded uh, colonial era divisions that we were just talking about mm. in the constitutional framework itself. Um, you know, the, the, the colonies that were so jealous of their neighbors and so defensive of their prerogatives uh, during the colonial era, and, and those attitudes eventually led to the revolution, they, they insisted throughout the 1780s, especially the smaller ones, against people like, you know, the, the claim by Patrick Henry I was talking about earlier, that representation should be proportional to population. These small states uh, insisted on having equal say in the national legislature. And of course, eventually, the Great Compromise, so-called, split the difference. And in the lower house, we have the people represented, and in the upper house, the states represented. But what, what that's done, and as people at the time you know, framers, James Madison, for instance, the so-called father of the Constitution, actually opposed this core compromise of it and, and thought that it would ruin the union. It would ultimately destroy the country because the large states would, would, would get very upset, you know, and frustrated yeah. that their will was being thwarted by, by smaller states. And today, California has 68 times the population of Wyoming, the smallest state, but, the, but they both have the same two senators. And I, I, I argue in the book that um, I think this is probably the, the cause of the next national rupture should should there should there come one what does the constitution say about secession and uh, what position did alexander hamilton take in the federalist papers in in discussing it they, uh, the Constitution does not say anything about secession, which is where all the problems come in. And in the Federalist Papers, to my knowledge, um, I, I, I don't know if Hamilton making a comment one way or another that secession would be allowed. I believe that they, uh, there was an assumption at the time that states that joined the Union could leave just as, as they had joined it, which, um, you know, as I mentioned before, was through a constitutional convention in each state where they, where they would, uh, you know, especially appointed convention where they could decide um, whether to stay in the Union or not. And, and that's what the Confederates believed. I, I think it's pretty clear that no state would have ratified the Constitution at the time if they had not had that understanding. And three states, including our own New York, uh, explicitly said so. The question is, did that change over time? Did, did the Union was a means to an end, um, and many people at the time thought might might well end uh, if, if it failed to serve the purposes for which it was established. But did that turn eventually, you know, by the 1830s, 1850s, into an end in itself, an, an indissolvable nation, as, as Andrew Jackson believed, as Abraham Lincoln believed, that could never be broken? Um, a lot of people say this question was, was, you know, resolved by the Civil War. We fought a war over this once. It was settled at Appomattox, uh, quote, unquote. I don't really think that's the case. Um, 
you know, there was that was a war where one side beat the other. It wasn't a constitutional argument. Um, and there was a Supreme Court case afterwards that seemed to suggest that the union was perpetual and could never be dissolved. But, you know, the, nobody really asked the court to decide that issue. And, and it's, you know, it's 150 years old. I'm not sure that if, if California or Texas tries to leave the union, that that's going to hold much water. You know, Texas v. White from 1869 uh, is the name of the case. I, I don't really think that that would be considered binding on, on the president. But there is a no, no sense of cohesion within those states. If Texas or California, New York were to secede, then they'd have to face internal divisions as well. Uh, we saw that interestingly with Oklahoma, which almost became two states uh, because they, they were dealing with the whole matter of Indian reservations. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, you know, the Confederacy and the Union both had to deal with this in the 1860s as well. And, you know, you know, speaking internationally, that's always the problem. I mean, you know, one country breaks off and then another country wants to break off from that one. This is why Lincoln, uh, you know, famously called secession the essence of anarchy. That once he started breaking down the, these, these states, um, there would be no end to it. Uh, it's definitely a, a major consideration. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Uh, we are streaming at WBAI.org. And my guest is Richard Kreitner, who is a columnist for The Nation, among other things, and the author of a number of books. Uh, we're discussing his latest book. It's from Little Brown called Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. We'll continue our conversation after this. Do 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 down do be do down down Come a come a down do be do down down Come a come a down do be do down down Breaking up is hard to do Don't take your love away from me Don't you leave my heart in misery If you go then I'll be Breaking up is hard to do. Remember and uh, we are back from the break. Uh, before we return to my conversation with Richard Kreidner, I'd like to take just a few minutes to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us get back on our feet after this pandemic has made our financial situation quite difficult. Uh, we need everyone who listens to Leonard Lopez at large and is financially able to please step up right now by going to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two WBAI.org. Or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. And one great way to support WBAI without having to pay a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Their listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running, um, it gives us cash flow, among other things. And anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the, the name of Leonard Lopez at large by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to the website give2wbai.org, anyone who does that will get a free copy of uh, the book by my guest, Richard Kreitner's Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up right now so we um, 
can continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. And and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support the show and the station, because, um, you know, we don't take grants or corporate underwriting. All of the programs on WBAI are totally reliant on the generosity of listeners like you. So if you haven't already and you can, why not make that call now at 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org and sign up to become a BAI buddy. And uh, we return now to Richard Kreitner, whose latest book is called Break It Up. When you talk about uh, breaking up the uh, the union, the Civil War is the only thing that always seems to come up. Um, at, at the time of the founding or in the early 1800s, did any Americans think that tensions, especially over slavery, might lead to a conflict as severe as the Civil War? Absolutely, they did. You know, I think I think they assumed that a civil war was coming. Many of them, they just weren't sure how how soon it would be. I, I, I just want to thank you for playing that Neil Sedaka song. Breaking up is hard to do. I, I made a uh, playlist while I was working on the book of different songs with the words or the message. Uh, my favorite was Patty Smith. Break it up off uh, horses. Um, yeah, the founders, you know, I write in the book that, that even, even the people like George Washington or a guy named John Witherspoon who spoke to the Continental Congress in the summer of 1776 when they were trying to draw up the Articles of Confederation and were finding they, that they just couldn't come to terms on it. They couldn't agree on anything. And he kind of gave them this pep talk. And, and both of those people and really anybody who's, who's talked about national unity at the very beginning of the Republic, they assumed that the Republic would not last or that the Union would, would become dissevered at some point. They just wanted to push that off into the future as, as long as possible. <laughs> they just wanted and, to hold you, it off. And, and, and you suggest that the sorry, question is not why the Civil War broke out in 1861, but why it didn't happen sooner. When were people first calling for secession? Were there any violent confrontations before 1860, 61? Oh, very, yeah, very, very many. I mean, you know, the, the first the first separatists really were in the western uh, reaches of the New Republic in the 1780s and the 1790s, and these were people who had already left the states behind. So they, they'd, they'd shown that they had really no no fidelity to the states or to the New Republic at all. They were still within the confines of, of the United States as delineated by the peace treaty with Great Britain, but they really didn't care about Virginia, you know, or, or, or um, you know, North Carolina. Uh, they, many of them wanted to start their own country. And uh, Spain, you know, again, foreign meddling, Spain was in control of New Orleans at the time, and they were able to, to turn American loyalties away from the United States by closing the Mississippi River to these, these Western settlers' trade and, and goods and whatnot. Uh, if they couldn't send their goods down the rivers to the Mississippi and New Orleans and out to the world, um, they, they wouldn't be able to make a living. So Spain tried to use this to, to get their allegiance uh, over to Spain and away from the United States. So that that existed in Kentucky and Tennessee and southern Ohio, um, you know, for the first couple decades of the American Republic. As for a violent clash, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion, back to Hamilton mm -hmm. of um, 1794, which is when, the, you know, similar, similar, a little further to the east, um, Western settlers who used whiskey essentially as currency because there was, there was a shortage of hard coinage at the time. 
um, objected to this new tax that that, Hamil- that Hamilton had backed, and and you know decided that they weren't going to pay it. And not only that, they were going to tar and feather the tax collectors and any <laughs> distillers who bothered to to pay it. You know, it was really really rough stuff. This is around the time of the French Revolution, and there was no guillotine uh, in the back country, but people were talking about it. Um, and you know, Washington, his president, eventually appoints Hamilton, his Treasury Secretary, to lead an army over the western uh, over the Allegheny Mountains to suppress the rebellion, which he does quite violently and viciously, um, and imprisons hundreds of people without charges. A really kind of ugly episode in American history, and, and I would say a stain on Hamilton's legacy. Um, and a lot of those, you know, Western settlers wanted to wanted to secede also um, and form a new country. Um, you know, but as I mentioned earlier, the Northern Disunionists, later on it was abolitionists, but uh, once Jefferson was elected in 1800, uh, these Federalists of New England, who really had been the people who backed the Constitution in 1788 and, and backed Washington and Adams' administrations, once their mortal political enemy, Jefferson, takes power in 1800, they decide that they want to secede from the Union. Um, which is, you know, a total reversal because in the 1790s, Jefferson and Madison had been the party of states' rights and, and even of secession. Um, so the New Englanders try to secede from the Union, and that's actually what ultimately leads to Hamilton and Burr's duel, is because Hamilton accuses Burr of, of being in cahoots with the Northern separatists, as he as he very well might have been. In a New York Times article in 1861, a writer claimed, I'm quoting, in the whole movement of secession, not one trace of genuine nationality has appeared, only hostility to the North. Was there a sense of genuine nationality in the North? Didn't the New York City Mayor Fernando Wood call for the city to secede on its own and become the free state called the free city of Triinsula? Try into it, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorites. Um, yeah, yeah. Fernando Wood did. Um... And you know, I show that 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 was one that was one among many proposals that was made during the secession crisis. That was that was a way to extract one group of people or another from the brewing crisis and from the approaching war. Um, so yeah, there was this proposal to break New York off because New York was very close to the southern states um, through trade ties. There was even an illegal slave trade um, to and from Africa that was going on right up until the Civil War in New York City, kind of an open secret with you know friends in very high places. Um, so New York didn't want to get cut off from those southern trade ties uh, once the South left the Union and its war broke out. So this was a very popular proposal, especially um, among the business elite and, and also really among the poor working class, the poor white working class in New York, um, which didn't want to go to war, you know, on, on behalf of a, an anti-slavery ca- uh, cause. And once the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in 1863, that's when you saw the draft riots, which effectively was, was bringing the rebellion home to, to you know, midtown Manhattan. Uh, but other proposals uh, during the secession crisis, uh, which, which showed that, you know, this, this lack of nationality in the Union uh, was something called a central confederacy. You know, the South Carolinians know about their state's um, heritage of, of secession. I don't think that, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. Nobody really told me that, that people in New Jersey considered seceding from the Union in 1861 so as to avoid getting caught between northern and southern armies. You know, New, New Jersey had seen a lot of the action during the American Revolution, you know, and the, and the fields were kind of drenched with blood, and its leaders didn't want to have anything to do with that again. So this was an idea that caught on in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and especially Maryland, um, and, and several other places, of breaking off from the Union, uh, forming a central confederacy as a way to kind of 
you know, make cooler heads prevail in both the North and South and bring everyone to the negotiating table and reconstitute the country on, on stronger terms. Um, and then, you know, we can talk about the West Coast, uh, California secessionism, you mentioned in 2016. But what I found curious that a lot of people didn't mention at that time was that the idea of California secession and the idea of an independent Pacific Republic of California, Washington, Oregon, maybe even British Columbia has existed, you know, going back 200 years now. Uh, Jefferson supported it. Daniel Webster supported it. And, and even the governor of California wanted the state to secede in 1861 so as to avoid getting embroiled in the, the Civil War. Now, New York State, to get coming back to um, my, our home, um, has had a long history uh, within its own, uh, within the state. For example, not just Fernando Wood's uh, free city of Tri-Insula, but also there have been calls for Long Island, Staten Island to secede from the state. And as recently as 1969, um, I remember when Norman Mailer and Jimmy Breslin ran for office with an agenda of making New York City the 51st state. Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, you know, I, I thought you were going to say it goes back much earlier even than the Civil War. Yes, it comes to today, but uh, during the ratification, uh, you know, struggle over the Constitution, New York was bitterly divided between upstate and downstate, as, as of course it is today. Mm. People in the city and Westchester and its environs wanted to ratify the Constitution because they were, you know, linked into all these trade networks and they knew that they would benefit. Whereas people upstate, more rural people, were, you know, were predominantly anti-federalist and they opposed it. Um, and for a while, they actually succeeded succeeded in, in preventing New York from ratifying the Constitution. And this terrified the people in the city, you know, like Hamilton, who thought that New York would actually be left out of the Union. Um, and and uh, Hamilton and a guy named John Jay, who also, you know, co-wrote the Federalist Papers, proposed that, that the downstate counties, Westchester, New York, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Long Island, secede from the state and, and form their own state uh, and, and ratify the Constitution that way and just give up on the, on the upstaters. So um, that could have been an interesting scenario as well. They wanted New York City to continue to be called New York State and, and the, the rest of the state to be called Buffalo. Yeah, maybe. I'm not, sure they, yeah, I'm not sure they got down to the, the terminology. <laughs> well, you mentioned Frederick Douglass. After the Civil War, he called on Americans to create, quote, something incomparably better than the old union. What did he envision? Uh, uh, did, did, was any a call for a stronger central government uh, about being less federalist? Well, he, he basically saw... Um, the, the union as being followed by a, a you know very radical revolution in national political affairs. A lot of people thought that the Fourteenth Amendment um, could be construed as essentially blotting out the states. So, you know, you would still have the Senate and everything, but states wouldn't have nearly as much control over their own affairs. Um, and and the South would not be able to reinstitute slavery in all but name. Um, so so he saw you know the the purpose of the Union as 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 Lincoln did really of you know of forming a new nation, uh, rededicated to to equality and, and liberty. Uh, it didn't work out that way because you know the North effectively gave up. White Northerners effectively gave up on Reconstruction and said to the South, you know what, you can you can do it your way. We're not going to bother you. Um, we just want to focus on, you know, making money and, and spreading West. Um, well, actually, there was the and, impeachment. There was the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, but it failed. And I guess people gave up after that. 
Yeah, I mean, it took a, it took a few more years. It really is after I think the 1873 um, financial panic, when when Northerners kind of felt that they had other other things to worry about. Um, yeah, no, but I think I think the the impeachment of Andrew Johnson was certainly a turning point. I, I note in the book that um, it very nearly caused the second civil war. You know, a lot of um, a lot of people are talking today. What if Trump doesn't leave office? Or, or they were saying that during the impeachment proceedings this past winter. Uh, a lot of people were saying that at the same time. There were a lot of Confederates who probably promised that they would field an army on behalf of Andrew Johnson if Congress tried to remove him from office. Um, and I think there's a very strong case to be made. He was ultimately acquitted by a single vote. I think there's a very strong case to be made that some Republicans did not vote to remove him from office because they feared that it would trigger a new outbreak of violence. You know, we, we tend to think the Civil War, as, as you mentioned, uh, was kind of the one instance in American history. And before that and after that, there were really no threats to national unity. Uh, but that's really not the case. There, were, there was about a decade or two after the Civil War where a lot of people thought it seemed likelier than not that there would be another one. But you write that the trauma of the Civil War made another attempt at secession by the South unthinkable, but also revived compromise as a national civil religion. You refer to union without unity. It sounds like something we're, we're going through right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it took, it took about 10 or 15 years for it to become clear that the South was not going to make another try at secession. Uh, once it did, you know, they didn't really need to because they, they, they got the Union reconstituted on their own terms, effectively on the terms that they had demanded going into the Civil War. You know, slavery um, exempted, they, they, they were effectively able to reinstitute apartheid and segregation and a system of, of, of you know, racial oppression um, as they had wanted to and as they had only very briefly been challenged uh, by the North not to do. So, so, you know, after the Civil War, with the Compromise of 1877, which, which resolved a disputed presidential election, much like the one we might face this year, um, basically, you know, reinstated compromise as the national political tradition. Uh, and that might sound good, you know, but, but it, it came at a cost. And that cost at that time, as, as in many times throughout American history, was borne by people of color, you know, above all. Well, we seem to have gone through a whole bunch of cycles of wishful thinking. Just a decade ago, the election of Barack Obama had people talking about a post-racial America. Uh, and, and obviously that hasn't happened as well. So uh, have we repeatedly deluded ourselves into thinking that past problems are really past? I, I worry that's the case. That's effectively the, the worry or the supposition that led me to write the book. You know, I think Obama was, at least for our current day, probably our, our best last hope for, for uniting the country around a common sense agenda. You know, he wasn't offering anything, you know, too radical. And, and look what happened. Um, you know, he, he started talking about a more perfect union. Nobody had really talked about that in, in quite some time. It might sound like kind of hoary political rhetoric. Of course, it comes from the preamble of the Constitution. But it was kind of new, actually, you know, for, for an American politician to be talking about true union um, for, you know, 100 years or something. Um, but it just, we, we just couldn't do it. You know, yes, we can. No, no we couldn't. We couldn't. Um, and it, it really made me doubt whether uh, we, we ever could, you know, become united. Um, and people, you know, politicians continue to use this rhetoric of unity and, and you know, we're in this together. But it, but it sounds increasingly hollow to my ears, at least. When he was campaigning for William McKinley in, 18, seven, in 1896, uh, Theodore Roosevelt said that uh, progressive populists were, quote, plotting a social revolution and the subversion of the American Republic. So was uh, that a time where people were calling for disunion? 
Um, there were a few. There were a few populists, um, you know, because populism, we, again, we forget today, was a sectional movement. It was really based in the West and in the South as against the Northeast, as against these kind of bankers um, based in, you know, in New York, of course, uh, that, that these these farmers thought were ruling the country and, and bringing it to ruin. Um, so there were a few people who were talking about secession. It never, it never coalesced as a major plank of the populist platform, um, and certainly, you know, party leaders like William Jennings Bryan rejected it. But as you know, here's another echo for today: um, Republican leaders like Roosevelt and, and McKinley seized on these, these, this possible threat to national unity to depict populists and socialists um, and anarchists, especially, as a threat to the Union akin to that posed by the Confederates. And so this was a time where North and South were, were coming together and agreeing to, you know, let bygones be bygones and, and reunite the country on the terms of white supremacy. Um, and, and it was considered, you know, for, for, for socialists or anarchists to undermine that, to, to be against national unity, effectively, um, you know, they were able to be tarred as secessionists and disunionists. We, we see something similar today with the, the street protests going on and the, the language that the Trump administration uses. But even now, uh, despite you know, the... Despite the removal of Confederate flags and statues of Confederate icons, don't many Americans still romanticize the Civil War and, and the slaveholding South? They really do. I mean, this is probably the, the primary piece of evidence that I think gives the lie to national unity. It's not many countries, I guess. Great Britain and, and Scotland would be the, the exception that have a, a you know that saw a rebellion a century and a half ago that still wins very large support uh, among the population, including you know most interestingly in areas that have absolutely no connection to the historical Confederacy. Um, that that suggests to me at the very least lingering doubts about you know the national enterprise. You write that Republicans have had a forty-year-old strategy of weaponizing American divisions, uh, which goes back to Reagan. But didn't Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon pioneer what's known as the, the Southern strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I trace it back to Nixon. Uh, I'd say more than Reagan. Um, and Goldwater, you know, I only exempted because he didn't really succeed uh, in, in gaining political power. But, my, my, you know, the, the quote that indicates this to me is from Patrick Buchanan, who, who first made his name as a close Nixon advisor, who said, if we break the country in half, we can pick up the bigger half. <laughs> that was that was his political strategy, and I think that's effectively um, what the Republican you know strategy is today. He started you know at the very top of the hour talking about e pluribus unum and in God we trust. That made me think of the Pledge of Allegiance, and I, I saw I wasn't watching. I wouldn't I wouldn't stoop so low, but I saw that somebody said that about the Republican National Convention last night that in reciting the Pledge of Allegiance they left out the word indivisible. <laughs> they just, oh, they just they? skipped over it, which to, but yeah, they made sure to stick in under God. Oh, of course, but they left out indivisible, which just really says it all to wow. me. Now, uh, I, I've had some disillusioning experiences reading this. Uh, Rose, Teddy Roosevelt also suggested, quote, taking 10 or a dozen of their leaders out, sending them against a wall and shooting them dead. Wow, that yeah, sounds like... Yeah. <laughs> In your view, could we be better off as several nations rather than the United States? 
it's possible. I don't think so today. I think there's too much there's too much that we would lose, both you know, um, on sentimental grounds, which I'm not immune to, and in, in practical material grounds. Um, and I, I hope that we can avoid this scenario. I'm kind of you know I kind of wrote the book to really warn you know Americans that I think this is what is coming. This is what is this is what we're we're letting happen, and we should decide whether we're okay with that. I think there are reasons you know scenarios that could that could occur in the future in which we should be okay with it. You know. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of columns these days about um, the GOP after Trump, and there's different kind of fantasies in which they embrace, you know, immigration and and moderate, and then perhaps that'll happen. But there's other ones in which they use, um, you know, there's a Ross Douthat column about this, in which they use mechanisms in the Constitution itself, like the Senate and the Electoral College and gerrymandering and the Supreme Court and other federal courts to hold on to power, you know, as as a minority party um, in a country that that really wants to go in a different direction, but that they use these built-in advantages to, to hold on to power. And if that's the case, I, I, I don't see what, what Democrats or progressives um, should do except start thinking seriously about withdrawing their support from the union. I hope that that doesn't happen. You know, I think the main reason to stick together, I, as I see it, is climate change. Um, you know, the United States of 330 million people taking robust action, as in the Green New Deal, to tackle climate change is a lot more powerful than the Northeastern Republic doing it and maybe the West Coast doing it and nobody else, you know, coming along. Um, so as long as that's as that seems potential, um, you know, for us to do, I, I should say, I say we should stick together. If that becomes impossible, if it seems like, you know, the national government has become so dysfunctional and so um, in hoc to, you know, minority rule um, and corporate interests, then I, I, I wonder if we should possibly pull the plug. You know, I don't, I don't argue that we should, but I, I definitely think it needs to be a live option on the table. Um, you know, say, say Trump tries to steal the election, as he's already trying to do this November. I mean, what, what's, the, what's the or else? We, we issue a lot of, like, warnings about this happening, but what, what are we going to do? Um, I saw there, there was, last thing I'll say on that, there was, you know, a bipartisan working group of academics and national security specialists that the Boston Globe reported was, was meeting to work out different scenarios if, if the election results are contested this November. And one scenario that they had was if Trump does try to stay in office, despite Biden being the clear victor, you know, it's, it's very possible that California, Oregon and Washington try to secede from the union. Now, we have just less than a minute to go, but I wanted to address one other issue. Have states found a means to secede in practice through what's known as nullification, the theory that states are sovereign, are the final judges of their constitutional rights and duties and can invalidate federal laws that they deem to be unconstitutional? I mean, they've certainly tried. South Carolina, most famously, in, in 1833, with, um, tried to nullify a tariff. And, and ultimately, Jackson tried to stare them down. Then they formed a compromise to lower the tariff in exchange for South Carolina giving in. Other states have tried it, you know, to, to a less obvious and outright extent. I mean, federal law prohibits marijuana, but we have 11 or 12 states selling it openly, right. you know, today. And there have been other, you know, similar um, instances of that. So that, that's, that's one way to do it, for sure. I think what would, what's most likely, and we you know, we don't have time to get into it, but as regional compacts uh, where states band together and say, you know what, we're going to take a lot of the power from the federal government and then just do things our own way on, say, health insurance or climate change or something else. Richard Kreitner's book is Break It Up, Secession, Division, uh, the, uh, the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union, published by Little Brown. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you. 
Thank and, you. I really enjoyed it. You're really the journalist I most wanted to talk to when I came up with the book idea. So oh, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, but that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our show and you'd like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else podcasts are available. You can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to comment on today's show or any of our past shows, or if you just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I'd just like to take one last moment to ask for your support for this station. Um, if you care for this show and the other shows on BAI, please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, or calling 516-620-3602. And if you become a member today, you can also have a free, you'll receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing Break It Up, Secession, Division, and Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow when neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux will discuss his latest book, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains. We'll see you then.